Welcome to the Lubber's Hole. It's great to have you back with us. You are with Ian. And with Mike. And you're joining us as we're getting right into the meat of Treason's Harbour, partway through our reread of all 21 Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, catch us up. What was going on last time? What might we expect in this week's episode? Absolutely. Well, last time, Ian Jack reported back on his mission and got some surprising bad news from the Admiral. Stephen and Mrs. Fielding's relationship deepened as Stephen worked to deceive the French. And we chatted with our guest, Philip Ball, about Napoleonic history, Malta, the Ottoman Empire, and the lack of love between the Army and the Navy when it came to amphibious operations. Uh So this week... Ray and Matron's relationship takes a surprising turn. Jack works through yet another difficult loss. Killick, our hero, saves the Chilank. And we return to Katali, where we meet old friends and Jack fumbles with Greek and Italian, almost giving the wrong impression about pullings, and then prepares for a bear hunt. (laughs) We're going on a bear hunt. Oh, I love the sound of that. That's right. We left Jack with a tear in his eye and asking Bonded to deliver Stephen dry-footed to the Admiral, at which he does. And yeah. shows up. Yeah, he's there with the Admiral. He's there with Mr. Ray, Mr. Pocock, you know, the, the kind of the Oriental specialist, kind of the intelligence uh, liaison for the Admiral. And the Admiral's young secretary, Mr. Yarrow. The Admiral comes in late. He's telling everybody he ate a little something that didn't agree with him. And they're discussing why this Mubara intelligence was so bad. And Pocock says he thinks Mehmet Ali had set it up that, you know, the English didn't back his bid for independence from Constantinople. And exactly at the time that that happened is when he turned to the French and this whole episode in the Red Sea was designed by them to embarrass England and and destroy its Red Sea influence. Ray agreed, saying that not only does he think that happened, but he thinks that Harabedian was surely the French insider that was kind of making you know, this mission come together. Um, yeah. yeah, They had recently been introduced to Harabedian. He'd come with all these, you know, great references, but they had not yet had time to check those references. And, and he's thinking probably they're going to turn out to be bogus. And he was also known to have passed on rumors, all these rumors about what time the galley was sailing, whether it had left yet. And, and clearly all those rumors turned out to be falsehood. So it looks like he was planning the bad information. And Stephen tells them all that, well, you know, Harabedian's papers might shed some light on the matter. And everybody is very surprised to hear that they've got Harabedian's papers. They're all going, well, you know, didn't you lose all that with the camels? And uh, uh-huh. Stephen's explaining, nope, nope, we still have those. And in the midst of this, the Admiral kind of dashes in and out of the meeting. You can tell he's got a little bit of a gastrointestinal <laughs> thing going on here. Now, uh, they get to Ray's section of the meeting, and he's telling them that he really has not succeeded in rounding up the French agents, that you know he had gotten this report of the one agent from Graham before he left, but uh, you know apparently he's gone or they couldn't find him. And he had gotten a couple of clerks, but he did, however, make, he said, some progress on the corruption in the dockyard and said he would soon be disclosing some very high-level names 
tied to this corruption, but he didn't want to say who they were yet because you know he wanted to finish the investigation. Admiral's back in, and and the admiral says, you know, look, we have got to stop this rapid flow of information to the French. You know, as soon as we get ready to do something, they know about it immediately, and they call on Stephen. And Stephen, you know, it's fascinating. You can tell Stephen's reacting to Blaine's letter. Stephen's saying, well, clearly there's some misunderstanding that, you know, he only advises the Admiralty on Catalonia and Spain, and he does that voluntarily. It's not part of his official duties. So he really doesn't have anything to say on this situation. But he does say that, you know, when last he was in this area, he had spoken to Mr. Waterhouse, the former admiral, the former commander in chief's head of intelligence. And of course, we know he worked with him very closely, but he acted as if <laughs> he shared some things. And he said, well, I can pass along his tips to you. And 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 the admiral at this time, you know, sort of jumps up, runs out again, does not come back. And and Stephen, we don't hear about his report, but we assume, you know, we we believe that Stephen goes ahead to tell them that. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating moment. Stephen being cautious, we think, oh, he read Sir Joseph's letter just in time. Um, and we're being very carefully set up to suspect that there's something going on with what Ray might do next and what's going on with Harabedian's papers. And was Harabedian actually a spy or was he just a jolly fellow who happened to, to steal Chilenks? And Stephen kind of suggested that maybe Harabedian was being fed false information from somebody. Exactly. So, interesting. Yeah. And we get the strong impression all the way through this that Ray is not not only padding the story about what he's been up to with his tale of the, the dockyard clerks, um, but that he's clearly misrepresenting his position and he's clearly not being transparent because, of course, we know he's working for the French. Right. But we still can't really tell what he might have planned. We can't really tell what might be coming next. So Ray asks Stephen to travel with him back ashore. Stephen invites him to go back to the place where they first had their first meaningful encounter, as you might say, at the Abbey to hear the monks sing. And Ray says that the, these investigations, these squalid investigations, have not so far allowed him time to go. He says he suspects some very surprising people there is really no one to trust, he says. And then we get this Latin quote, Munera navium sevos in laquea duces, you know. And we we'll, might have to unpack that in a second because the translation didn't tip off my tongue. <laughs> so after listening to the monks and being invited back into the, uh, to the world of the monks uh, by Stephen, he says he's lost the heart to tell Stephen about the investigations. And not surprising because there's nothing for him to tell that's honest and truthful to Stephen. So they sit there and they drink iced coffee and they talk about music again. And Stephen notices that Ray seems to be particularly attracted to their server, a beautiful youth with caressing ways. And Stephen thinks that Ray is gay. He uses the very 18th century word pederast or says he might be at least one who, like Horace, might burn for either sex. And O'Brien, it's it's funny that... Um, <laughs> the world of the early 19th century is, that O'Brien's writing about is clearly uh, what you might call heteronormative. And O'Brien's being quite careful to show that that's not him. So he points out that this doesn't bother Stephen, that he's not making a judgment about Ray's sexual orientation. But he does notice that Ray is nervous and restless and not in form. And Mike, this quote takes us back to Horace again, doesn't it? 
Right, right. You know, this this Latin is is from a, an ode from Horace, and and thanks to HMSSurprise.org and the Wiki P-O-B-I-A, <laughs> so the, the Patrick O'Brien Wikipedia uh, at HMSSurprise.org, you know, their translation is gifts may ensnare the savage leaders of ships. But looking back at the ode itself, in the ode, it's kind of talking more about the universal sway of money, how you know money is used to kind of buy and sell in, in kind of a tawdry way. And the reference here comes from a naval commander switching sides and being rewarded with gold rings and higher status by Octavian. We, we kind of visited Octavian back in the Egyptian part of the canon here. So, the, the, you know, this Roman leader here. And interestingly, all of this, everything that Ray's using to kind of describe, you know, can't be trusted, all of this is just, it's almost as like Ray is describing himself. It's kind of like, mm. ha, 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 you know, I'm telling you all about this, but it's actually me. And I think that that kind of tie back to Ray is reinforced with, you know, here is Ray quoting Horace and then Stephen thinking that Ray, like Horace, has this um, this orientation. So fascinating kind of way of O'Brien sort of talking about people almost unconsciously or or perhaps a little tauntingly kind of putting themselves out there like I'm smarter than you and I can say all this. It's I, I, I was fascinated by it. Yeah. So and if Ray is enjoying walking this this high wire act of of talking indirectly or at right angles about his situation, he also seems to enjoy the high wire of gambling with cards. Stephen says, I, I've got to go get money from the hotel. My man of business says I'm rich and I intend to indulge my favorite vice for an hour or so, which is playing for high stakes. I'm like, I, I wonder, I, I suspect, but I don't know for sure, this is Stephen spotting something in Ray's character that he's kind of throwing out a hook for. This is exactly what it came across to me, Ian. I, I couldn't yeah. agree with you more, right? Yeah. And I, I love this this whole setup with Stephen playing cards with Ray. It's great. This is this is the Stephen that we remember who, who took out two bad guys in Boston. This is the Stephen that we remember who shot the eyes out of the King of Hearts on a playing card um, on, the, uh, on the deck of Jack Aubrey's first ship. Um, Ray can't tell if he's serious. Stephen, it says, didn't look like a gambler, but clearly Ray didn't look at the reptilian gaze in his eyes. Right. Brian, though, tells us that Stephen loves to play, and it's a weakness that he must keep in check. And Mike, I think we've seen Stephen fleece one or two low-key players in card games occasionally from time to time. But there's this duel coming, this intellectual duel between these two intelligence um, operatives, and it's sort of being represented for us and played out in Dumb Show here with this this card game and of course Stephen, the dueling the spy hero must have learned a thing or two about gambling of course he's the kind of uh, regency james bond he spent some time in prison and learned from a wealthy card sharper how not to get cheated upon right right that was fascinating and we do get a little bit of this backstory of of Stephen having a, this you know gambling habit having gone to you know had some run-ins playing dice and you know his his godfather had to get him out of it and everything so it's it's interesting Stephen clearly has got ray absolutely in his sights he's watching him all during the governor's dinner ray and Stephen along with many other people have been invited to this dinner 
and he watches how Ray makes himself agreeable to powerful men, very different men. So Ray has this ability to do that. And so after dinner, as they're moving into the gaming room, Stephen asks Ray if he'd like to play Piquet. And uh, Ray's kind of asking him about a few other things, but Stephen's drawing him right into his game. So Stephen uses this trick, and everybody who's watching all the uh, Texas Hold'em, you know, everybody covering their eyes up and (laughs) doing this, Stephen's playing exactly this thing. He's playing to win, and he sets themselves so that the north light is kind of right on Ray's face so Stephen can absolutely read his pupils. And this whole card game is about picking up and laying down. So it's like every time Ray picks up a new card, Stephen can kind of see whether this is good news or bad news. Ray obviously shuffles really well, does all this stuff, but Stephen's thinking, yeah, you've played a lot before, but you don't know these kinds of tricks because you don't realize what I'm doing. Uh, So O'Brien writes that Ray's changing fortunes could be read in rapid sequence. And kind of laying insult to injury for Ray, Stephen also has this enormous run of luck. He's getting great cards. And Ray's cards are just good enough that he's kind of betting up. But Stephen, realizing where he is, just absolutely runs the game to the point where Stephen announces to Ray, there's no satisfaction in winning with such outrageous fortune. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Ray, Ray kind of laughs and says, yeah, well, I, I think I could handle it. I, I get it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Ray then immediately says, well, I, I certainly hope that I can call upon you for a game in the future so I can get my revenge. So it's kind of on with Stephen and Ray, I think here. <laughs> yeah. And I love there's a bit of juxtaposition with the next paragraph. So Stevens fleeced Ray for a load of card winnings. Ray wants to get his revenge, but Stevens is going to go out and spend the winnings on the setup for the next episode in his work with Laura, which of course is aimed at suborning the network that Ray is involved in. He uses his winnings to buy flowers. He buys food. He buys a mandolin, a mandolin to play with Laura Fielding for his visit that evening. He takes great pains getting himself ready and arranging the sitting room. And the text says, for although he knew intellectually that his relationship with Mrs. Fielding must remain perfectly chaste, much of his being longed for it to be otherwise. Back to the coil we were talking about before. Um, And his breath came short at the idea of seeing her so soon. So, Mike, this is we're getting a little bit of a definition or an illustration of amitié amoureuse here, what it might mean. Laura's very late and Stephen's sullen. He's ill-tempered. But seeing her, his resentment, it says, melted away like frost in the full sun. And it wouldn't be a romantic scene without a a, a fire and melting ice <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> um, knowing how late she is, she's especially kind and attentive to Stephen, which, to pick up the metaphor again, caused Stephen's fires to burn with a still brighter flame. And Mike, if, if this was just romantic fiction, we'd be going, yeah, 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 yeah. But this is Stephen Maturin. <laughs> and we can't dismiss it as mere enthusiasm. Stephen goes into the next room, he says, says three Aves, three Hail Marys, <laughs> comes back with what appears to be a coded message, abruptly halted because of a mistake in deciphering. And this is the message that Laura's going to give to the French. This is the parallel to the moment where he gets into the hands of Herapath and Louisa Wogan, the information that's going to poise the Franco-American intelligence network. 
She's very grateful, but she's still really anxious. They eat this food together that he's bought. They play the mandolin. They keep up the cover of being lovers long into the night. And there's this very tender, very kind of friendly atmosphere. They're sharing story, including her stories about her husband's jealous nature and the scenes that he's made. She talks about her husband's many virtues that Stephen finds rather tedious and suggests that they leave so that the watcher outside will see them. And as they tiptoe down the stairs and past Jack's room's floor, they hear a howl of pain. They hear someone call, Avast, play there! And they see two figures running across the landing, jumping out of a first floor window. I'm like, this is great. Killick! <laughs> Killick both undercuts and triumphs as he storms onto the landing, calling, all hands, all hands, stop thief! He sees Mrs. Fielding under her hood and says, beg pardon, miss, and tells that these two individuals had tried to steal Jack's chilenk from the sea chest, but preserved Killick had got the better of them. One of these thieves had left a finger hidden in a rat trap. And meanwhile, other folks from the hotel come. Sea officers glance elsewhere as they realise that the person who's standing on the landing there is this Lady Laura Fielding. And I guess they look elsewhere because they suppose that she's been a liaison with Jack rather than with Stephen. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Anyhow, Laura tries to hide deep inside her hood. She doesn't want to be seen by these naval officers who are likely her and her husband's friends. Stephen takes her off the scene and guides her through the crowd into the night. Yeah, <laughs> kind of what a turnaround here all of a sudden. You know, yeah. So much going on there. And, and O'Brien, and it's just his classic style, completely shifts scene, completely shifts perspective, and we're at the next morning. And it's Lesseur and Ray meeting. And, and Ray is clearly very anxious. And Lesseur kind of comments, I thought you'd be on time today. <laughs> Ray is all, you know, what happened? What happened? And Lesseur says, well, one boy lost a finger, but they did manage to get Herobedian's papers from Jack's room. And there's nothing in them that would identify either of them. So now we know. Ah, this now was not, we see. Yeah. Yeah, this wasn't the Chilank that was the target. This was Herobedian's papers. And Ray just goes on and on. Why hadn't Lesseur sent him a note telling him earlier that, uh, you know, he was so nervous the prior night that he'd lost a large sum of money gambling. And Lesseur tells him the less written, the better. Litera scripta money. Uh, he shows Ray this coded message that Mrs. Feeling delivered from Stephen. By by the way, that uh, that little you know Latin that I just mangled there is is a phrase that, <laughs> that means the written word remains. In other words, you uh, you I, I don't I'm not going to write you notes. That's the reason we had to go to get Harabedian's papers. And he's kind of using that phrase to say, uh, by the way, look at this. See, Matron wrote this down, or we've gotten this from Mrs. Fielding. So, and that that phrase comes from our friend Horace again. So, O'Brien, you know, you pick up the little Easter eggs, and there we go. We're you know we're we connecting the dots. So, this message, they're looking at it. Ray confirms, yep, that's Matron's handwriting, and it's in Admiralty Code B. And it appears, Lesur says, it would have been very, very valuable, but obviously the writer got confused with the cipher and then stopped and must have started a new draft 
elsewhere. So Stephen very brilliantly has written this thing, just starting to get their you know sense of oh my gosh, this is going to be great, and then it's like crossing things out, and you know this seems to be a draft that was thrown away. So Lasur is very pleased, and Ray, and then you know Ray reports to him about the admirals meeting and says that Stephen kind of you know played it close to the vest, but did talk about Waterhouse. And mm. you know, Stephen was talking about Waterhouse's uh, instructions about detecting spies and planting false information. And Ray's kind of writing it off as, you know, so we've got nothing. But to me, I'm kind of hearkening back going, remember when Ray was just kind of saying, you can't trust anybody. Stephen is kind of telegraphic. Yeah, well, I'm detecting spies and planting false information through them. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I kind of wondered, this seems a little bit risky. And I thought, well, maybe this is kind of one way of deferring suspicion by being a little bit, you know, I seem to be so out in the open. I don't know, interestingly. But Lesur is is very interested to hear a little bit more about Waterhouse because Lesur says, I was at his last interrogation. You know, we couldn't get anything out of him. We could never get a hold on him. So, you know, he's just this consummate agent, which, of course, we think that Stephen Matron is as well. He does say that unlike Waterhouse, he's, you know, right now he's got a bit of a hold on Stephen Matron, he believes, through Laura Fielding but that it won't last long and that they're going to have to get rid of Matron using Ray's original idea of the day of Mascara. So uh, Ray says, you know, yeah, that will answer very nicely. I used to say that that would kill two birds with one stone, but now I can say we'll kill three birds with one stone. And this was a big pause for me going, whoa, whoa, whoa. We were thinking earlier you know, is this, is he talking about Stephen and Jack? Like, whoa, what's going on there? And then Lasur and Ray have this conversation about Lasur saying, you know, you really shouldn't see much of Matron. Ray's going, you know, I, I, you know, I resent your intrusion into my life. Lasur says, look, you see him all that you want, but remember, Matron is very dangerous, right? Yeah. And then Ray asks him if he's kind of heard from the people upstairs here, from the Rue Villars about covering his card debts. And Lesur says they are not going to pay above the original grant that Ray received in London to come out here. So another interesting fact here. Yeah. So going back to Ray wanting to get his revenge over Stephen in the card game, hmm, is he going to have to play double or quits with Stephen? We shall have to see. Right. And he's got no no banker behind him. So this is Ray's money he's playing with here. Yeah. The Admiral, meanwhile, calls another meeting and they review this incident of the attempted theft of Harabedian's papers. They agree that Harabedian was, it turns out, a French agent. His colleagues, they discover, had stolen papers from Jack's room. The Admiral suggests that Stephen Maturin could help Ray's investigation. And it must have been quite puzzling for the Admiral, who seems like a quite sort of upfront, straightforward kind of a fellow, um, when both the highly thought of Stephen Maturin and the highly ranked Mr. Ray both seem to (laughs) pour cold water on that suggestion. Right. Anyhow, Ray and Stephen meet often so that Ray can continue to try to win his money back and so that Stephen can get out of the small, noisy cabin where he's spending his time while the, while the surprise is being repaired. 
we hear that the dockyard has been doing a good job on the surprises innards and this is great because a couple of chapters ago they were wasting a huge amount of time and money footling around with uh, with the Worcester. Jack, we discover, wants to get the surprise dressed to look her best for her return home. And Mike, th- th- this reminds me of, uh, <laughs> of the difference in perspective between me and Mrs. Bradley. Um, if we're going away on vacation, I'm going to go, yeah, pack the bags, pull the door behind us, we're gone. If the house is filthy, never mind, we'll clean it when we come back. And Joey will say, well, no, if we're going on vacation, we're going to leave a spotless house so that when we come back, it's clean. But it's somebody else. Yeah, She'll clean a car before I sell it to somebody. And I'm going, why did I clean the car when I'm going to sell it to somebody else? So Jack absolutely wants Surprise to look great on her valedictory voyage. He shells out for gold leaf for the stern gingerbread work. He gets her ready also for the possibility of seeing action, even though that's quite unlikely. They have time since they were promised that she wouldn't leave without her marines and a reasonable proportion of her people so as much as jack enjoys the work he says it had a cruelly bitter taste at times so he's grateful for musical evenings with laura fielding and jack's now i think he's come around to the idea that laura and stephen are together although it says jack admired them a little less he's surprised at how they never act like they're together when they're at parties and he's still quite upset naturally i think that society at large think that jack is laura fielding's lover right and and you know i hadn't caught it in my last read through that you know she's spotted with stephen but they're standing right outside jack's room and of course stephen is jack's dear friend so it would make sense that perhaps stephen was escorting her back home well spotted hmm so this great card game serial card game between <laughs> between ray and stephen continues yeah they you know they continue you know ray keeps wanting his revenge and ray keeps losing and 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 stephen is kind of over it now his gambling fever is over he really doesn't want to do this but as you say he also doesn't want to hang around when everybody you know he, there's nobody to talk to and surprise they're all busy they're bagging around he's in his tiny little new cabin built especially for him and at Stephen, you know, is also feeling like Ray has lost so much money. They really can't deny him the chance to win some back. But Ray is becoming more unlucky, more anxious. And, and Stephen tells us no longer good company at all. You know, yeah. uh, Brian says, you know, Stephen's really starting to see more of his true character. He's really a rake. He's excessively attached to money. He has few principles. Uh, he says he's clever but has little bottom. <laughs> I like that. Not a phrase I throw around much nowadays, but I, it seems appropriate that's, for the that's time. A, that's a phrase that one of my grandmas would probably have used about someone. Oh, he's he's a bit lightweight and he doesn't have much bottom. I think that's definitely a mid-20th century. <laughs> I love it. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, Ray, interestingly, does not attempt to cheat Stephen either. Now, Stephen would have spotted it right off, but Ray, I think, knows that he cannot afford a second accusation since this old one still lingers around him. And and they're playing at this point for promissory notes because Ray has been telling Stephen he's waiting for money to come in from his man of business in London. And they finally agree to one last sum. Ray wants kind of double or nothing, you know, a, a game for the entire sum owed. And Stephen, you know, Stephen's like, okay, fine. I'm, I'm happy to get this over with. And Stephen actually isn't thinking much about it. He's thinking about this afternoon, I'm going with Pullings and Martin, and we're going to go explore this 
cave full of bats. So he and he really doesn't at this point care if he wins or loses. But they play, and Ray loses again, losing badly. And Ray takes a very long time to kind of count his score and take uh, you know kind of sum up everything that he owes Stephen, and then he finally speaks to him and he apologizes and tells Stephen that because of recent losses in the city, you know, back his investments back in London, he doesn't have the money to settle his debt and says he'll give Matron a note for the entire sum now. And in a few days, he'll have a deed of annuity on his wife's estate drawn up. And, you know, Stephen will receive quarterly payments at interest. And then when Admiral Hart dies, his wife's father, and she inherits, he'll pay Stephen off this debt that he owes him. Mm. So this is not gentlemanly uh, behavior, certainly not a man of honor would not be playing this way. So Stephen, Stephen's not happy about this. Um, you know, Stephen is thinking to himself, look, we are playing for what, you know, he calls ready money. And if Stephen had lost, he would have paid up. Yeah. And Ray sees that Stephen's obviously not happy and says, you know, is there any way I can sugar this pill and, and suggest that, you know, perhaps he could use his patronage. And, and Stephen thinks for a minute and says, you know, I've heard this ugly rumor that the Blackwater long promised to Jack has been given to another Captain and Ray confirms that it's true. So I think, just as you suspected, you know, Ray's had a hand in this. This is his ongoing little needling of Jack. He says, now it, it had to go to this Captain Irby because he had these parliamentary interests. But Stephen says, okay, so here's what I want you to do you need to provide Jack with a comparable vessel. And you need to be thinking about his desire to be on the American station. And Ray agrees. So then. Stephen says he'd also like a seagoing command for poolings, which I love. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and if the Reverend Martin, you know, he would like him to hold Reverend Martin in his good graces. And if he ever desires a transfer, he wants him to make it so. Ray thinks for a minute and he says, you know, poolings is going to be hard. That's that's harder. But for Martin, Martin can do anything he wants. Ray will make it happen. Now, Ray, you know, thanks Stephen profusely. And assures him that that he probably won't have to wait long for his money because surely Admiral Hart won't live much longer. He has dropsy. And then Ray launches into this discussion about this new how you they're using digitalis to treat dropsy and that that it's a dangerous jug. And O'Brien writes, Stephen had the impression that any dose that might diminish the Admiral's expectation of life still further would be heartily welcome. But before Ray could commit himself on that point, Pullings and Martin came to take Stephen to the cave. So fascinating. It sounds like Ray is almost plotting on how he can hasten his father-in-law's demise. And I kind of wondered reading this, whether he was trying to, you know, talk Stephen in to say, well, you know, you're a physician. You could, uh, you know, you, you could come do him in and then you'd get your money faster. Kind of very chilling also wondering, my gosh, we know Ray is this nefarious guy. We know Ray is plotting to have, you know, at this point, he's talking to Lasur about having Stephen killed. Now that Ray owes Stephen this great amount of money, I'm kind of wondering if he might not want to hasten Stephen's demise as well as his father-in-law's in general here. 
Yeah, and it's it's a very chilling note. But I think, without too many spoilers, I think chilling notes and Ray are going to come back to us a few right. more times in the future of this particular story. And th- we know from Stephen's previous attitudes to you know his his role as a physician, Stephen absolutely has a line that he will not cross in terms of you know taking taking the idea of something medical and using it for for ill purposes on somebody else. Digitalis, by the way, is the the sort of herbal decoction of the Fox Club. It's still in use. It's known as digoxin in modern medicine, used for treating cardiac arrhythmias. So there you go. I also kind of harken back, you and I were talking before about how, you know, kind of in an O'Brien fashion, on the one hand, you know, part of this conversation, oh man, now Jack may get a ship off to the North American station. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This, this could be good. Maybe it's good that he lost. But, you know, we know that often in, in O'Brien, just when things start looking good, they can get bad again. <laughs> we we yeah. kind of taken with one hand and taken back with the other here, right? This could all still come unstuck. Right. So, Speaking of things that could come unstuck, later on, Stephen goes and visits Laura Fielding and tells her about the wonderful cave trip that he's taken and all the bats that he saw. And he says he'll show her the bat cave on Friday. The bat cave. Yeah, right. Right. He's and and the show feet of gung. She'll be so excited <laughs> to see it. Right. <laughs> she tells him. And just a few paragraphs ago, the officers around the commander-in-chief's um, cabin table were saying, there's so much information about here. As soon as we do anything, everybody knows about it. Laura Fielding tells Stephen that he'll be far away on Friday. She heard it from a colonel's wife, as you do, that the Marines are going aboard on Thursday to sail on Friday. The admiral's daughter says that they're going to escort the Adriatic convoy. So the colonel's wife and the admiral's daughter between them are telling the whole town if that's right. who it is. Right. Um, Stephen thanks her for the information and picks out a very special parting gift for her to give to Lestuaire. There, my friend, he said to himself, with the blessing, little Irish phrase there, with the blessing, that should confound your knavish tricks for quite a while. So, Mike, here we go, right at the end of the chapter, I get this little reference. I'm thinking, of course, confound your knavish tricks now i don't know how many of the rest of the readers especially the british british readers of a certain age smoke this confound your knavish tricks is a line from the second verse of a national anthem it's a line from the second verse of the british national anthem So we've got the renegade Irish Catalan doctor, Maturin, quoting the second verse of the British National Anthem. It's the the first verse is, God save our gracious queen, etc., etc. The second verse says, O Lord our God arise, scatter his enemies, or her enemies if it's the queen, and make them fall. Confound their knavish tricks, confuse their politics. On thee our hopes we fix, God save us all. 
Love it. Oh. Love it. Love a little twist there with the blessing, Irish usage, navish tricks, British national anthem. Right, right. And, and, and a tune we're quite familiar with here in the States. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Our country tis of thee. Right. Oh, or as we like to call it, America. Yeah. <laughs> So, I, and I love this, you know, as, as Stephen, you know, he's sort of saying, I, I have to give you this special party gift if I'm going to be gone. Um, oh, and, and he walks into his other room and decides, which one of these poison gifts that I have created so far should I give her? Let me pick a very special one here. I love that. And and like you said, Ian, when Laura says, oh, you'll be gone on Friday, you know, he says, are you prepared to divulge the source of your intelligence? And Stephen realizes that this is it. Boy, this is this is how a lot of these leaks are getting out. And you tagged it right there. Well, yeah. God save us all, as you say in the anthem. And I and I think we're kind of I'm getting to that point in this chapter. God save us all. What you know, what what's gonna happen next here, right? Let's take a short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. You're listening to Mike and Ian on The Lover's Hole. So we join Stephen now in his newly refurbished surgeon's cabin aboard the Surprise. And Mike, I love this little detail that's painted by O'Brien. You know, it's been dozens and dozens of times that Stephen's found himself in a cabin on a on a ship of the Royal Navy. But we get this extra little bit of detail around Stephen far away in this little remote cabin where he knows he can go and not have to clear for action and not be all disturbed with his books and his specimens. We learned that he used some of his gambling winnings to line the walls of his cabin with mirrors so that he can read without a candle. And he's, he's using this nice moment of, of quiet away from the, uh, the drill of clearing for action and of light to write to Diana. We've had Jack already in this book writing quite large chunks of text and quite large chunks of the action explained to us as Jack writes to Sophie. But now Stephen's writing to Diana. And as we pick it up, he's railing on about Jack's refusal to sail by Ithaca, the great classical Greek location, Ithaca, after they'd blown close by on their way to Santa Mora to drop off two convoy ships. And this is, again, the old, old fight between Stephen and Jack, I think. Jack's rationale for not stopping at Ithaca was... Was that Homer was a lousy poet, and Ulysses was a terrible seaman, and Ulysses had taken far too long to make his way home, spent too much time hanging about in port philandering, he says, the vices of navies from the time of Noah to that of Nelson. And Stephen reports this wrap-up kind of dismissal of, of Ithaca by Jack Aubrey, who says, as for the tale of all his foremast hands being turned into swine so that he couldn't win his anchor nor make sail, why, he could tell that to the Marines. <laughs> very, very funny. And I think since it's in Stephen's hands, a very affectionate little portrait of Jack, who clearly, in his very kind of direct manly way, prefers the poetry of Moat and Rowan. And we hear that Jack thinks this is poetry a man could get his teeth into. And sound seamanship too. And he might as well have added, Mike, 
You can't say fairer than that. That's right. And I, I love it, Ian, because as you say, he's writing this to Diana and he is going on and on condemning Jack, uh, but not not having said who it is yet. And then I think he's kind of over it. He's sort of vented and he, he kind of tosses that piece of paper aside, grabs a new one and decides, you know, let's let's start a new draft. And so instead of yeah. this long thing about Ulysses and Homer, he does mention Jack's doggedly mechanical, stubborn refusal to turn a little way so that we might see Ithaca, but then focuses on what he calls his real point, Jack's, Jack's magnanimity and his self-command when the occasion calls for it. So we see you know, Jack kind of vilified, and all of a sudden he's telling Diana about he and Jack having dinner with a major Pollock, who's a passenger that uh, a soldier that they're carrying. Yep. And Pollock at dinner tells Stephen and Jack that his brother, a Navy lieutenant, is very proud of his new ship, the Blackwater. And Jack asks, well, is, he, is he quite sure it's the Blackwater? And he confirms, absolutely, it is. Uh, he's probably already in Nova Scotia with her. And Jack, who we know has got to be rocked by this news, you know, he's been long promised this, he proposes a toast to the Blackwater and all who sail in it, never lets his shock or his surprise or I'm sure his his immense letdown show. And later that evening, they're alone, you know, Stephen and Jack are together to play a little music and, and Stephen brings up this, you know, promise from the first lord that's been broken to jack and jack simply replies yes it's a damned heavy blow but whining don't help let us get on with our music so stephen who already knew about this from ray but jack had not and it seems that you know jack's taking it amazingly well but to have lost the surprise then lost the blackwater ah, this is this can't be sitting great with jack no i mean look up stoicism in the dictionary and you'd get a Jack Aubrey upon learning that he wasn't going to get the Blackwater. Well put. So, and he's speaking of stoicism, he's, he's in pretty philosophical mood or he's finding a way to access a bit of a sort of philosophical perspective on it all. He does feel worse about the whole situation in the morning when he wakes up. He's thinking about the fact that he's not taking his officers and followers with him. He's not going to be fully employed. And we know that that has consequences for his financial affairs at home. And interestingly, he's thinking about how Mr. Croker, the first secretary, having acted now apparently dishonorably towards Jack, is now going to look upon Jack negatively. And Mike, this is a sort of a mirroring of the bad attitude that Hassan had toward Jack earlier in the book when they parted company. Hassan was cold towards Jack because he, Hassan, couldn't pay him the money that he owned. And this is an interesting facet of human nature. We treat someone badly and then we're mad at them because we're embarrassed. So we take it out on them. We, we take poison and expect somebody else to die. Right, right. Exactly. I, I just, uh, you know, it's fascinating. As you say, and this is just Patrick O'Brien dissecting the way we are and writing it so convincingly and realistically in, into these characters. Oh, yeah. Well, Jack, obviously, you know, he's, he is feeling worse in the morning, but the folks around him can't tell it. As a matter of fact, they're sailing by Marga. So we remember Marga from a book ago. And Jack's got Major Pollock up top, and, and they're talking about all the action that happened. And here we go. This is kind of true Patrick O'Brien form. Yeah. Here was this major action at the end of the last book, and we're just now getting all the details about it. You know, this seems to be such a distinguishing feature of O'Brien's style. 
Jack yeah. is pointing out how they use this ropeway to position their guns high above the French. We learn now, didn't know before, that he had 600 Albanians and many Turks who helped them once they got the guns up there to actually roll them out on all these planks to get them in position. And that the French commander actually surrendered after they made a few sighting shots. So they, you know, they made a few sighting shots, sent down a note, and the commander gives in immediately. They had later found out that the commander's wife was in the middle of giving birth. And as O'Brien says, gunfire and falling houses, not at all the thing, right, when you're giving birth. And (laughs) all these people who had labored so hard to set this up, you know, the Albanians are about to turn on the Turks because, look, it's like, you know, we're going to kill somebody today after all that work. But they get uh, Xi'an Bey and they get the, the Pope and everybody kind of works to sort of separate them all. And then they have this great celebration afterwards there in Catali. So here we are learning this later. Yeah. And I think Major Pollock, I think, was on the side of the Albanians and the Turks, a feeling that he was enjoying the story when it first set out. But now that, you know, a peaceful surrender was obtained, he felt a bit let down and thought that this was really not a regular way at all to conclude a piece of action. But Jack's not having any of it. He's philosophical. He's eating dinner alone in his cabin. And as he looks out across the bay through the stern window as they make for Kutali, we get this beautiful, poetic and really poignant moment as Jack reflects on this window. And the text says, this was a sight that never failed to move him, the noble curve of shining panes, wholly unlike any land-born window, and then the sea in one of its infinity of aspects, and the whole in silence, entirely to himself. And here's the key phrase, Mike. If he spent the rest of his life on half pay in a debtor's prison, he would still have had this, he reflected, eating the last of the Kefalonian cheese. And it was something over and above any reward he could possibly have contracted for. And and Mike, I, I really love this. I mean, first of all, I love this because there's this very sentimental thought and utterance put together very beautifully and poetically, but just so that we know it's not completely sentimental, he puts this kind of pathetic thing in it about eating the last of the Kefalonian cheese. We're going to get some Kefalonian tobacco later on, so that's good. And it, it reinforced to me the the idea of HMS Surprise as a character. You know, this is like a longing description of a lover that you once had a love affair with you know you only have to change a few words and it sounds like that yeah darling if i spend the rest of my life on half pay in a debtor's prison uh, as, as the guy said in casablanca we'll always have paris maybe not today maybe not tomorrow but soon and for the rest of your life but what about us we'll always have paris we didn't have we we lost it until you came to casablanca got it back last night. Right. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it kind of a continuation here of Jack, who with all of these horrible things happening, is in the moment loving what he loves, not, you know, kind of all ahead with what's going to happen and how it's all going to turn out awful and everything else. So yeah. beautiful and definitely, uh, you know, a, a, an absolute love affair here between Jack and Surprise. They will have Paris. <laughs> We'll always have Catali. That's right, right. (laughs) And the Kefalonian cheese, right? Well, they're sailing up to Catali. Jack brings in Killick. He makes sure that everything is ready. And, and, you know, we learned from O'Brien that, you know, uh, Killick is sure everything's ready because he's been sampling all of it with his buds that morning, smoking the hookah. And then 
Jack asked Killick to send in Honey and Maitland, his senior midshipmen. And it's kind of an interesting interlude here. Jack's sitting down with them. They're wondering why they've been called in to see the captain, wondering what he's, he's caught them at. And Jack just questions him and says, you know, I, I think both of you have enough sea time in now to pass for lieutenant. And they go, you know, yep, absolutely. They confirm that. And Jack is advising them to sit for lieutenant when they get back to Malta, rather than waiting to be examined in what he calls the more all-inspiring London. And Jack is remembering back to his time, you know, in London, trying to take this lieutenant's exam, being, you know, questioned by this uh, group, this board. And he suggests that one of the areas that, that while their seamanship is excellent, they're probably lacking on, you know, real kind of scientific navigation. And, and we remember a young man who became a captain and a lieutenant who was still lacking. On that. That, was our, that was our man, Jack, here. And he's come a long, long way. And now he's telling them, you know, we're going to have kind of a calm cruise back. Why don't I just work with you every afternoon and I'll, I'll tutor you on these finer points of technical navigation. So uh, I love this. Jack's kind of reflecting to himself that once they pass for lieutenant, he really can't do much to help them, but he can help them at least do that. I know he's frustrated not being able to be sure that, you know, he just doesn't have the influence to get pullings a ship, but at least he saw him made lieutenant. And now thinking, you know, who could have helped me? What would have helped me? He's going to help Maitland and Honey here. And it's kind of nice, too. You pointed out, Ian, we were talking about this earlier, that there's a lot of things that are now out of Jack's control that he can't do anything about, about the surprise, about the Blackwater, yeah. about his situation at home, about you know this conflict now with the first secretary. But he can't help these guys. So here he is. What can I do? Who can I help? Oh, well done, Jack. Oh, I think O'Brien must be really enjoying characterizing Jack Aubrey as a more and more rounded and resourceful and admirable person as the books go along. You know, despite the adultery and despite the sort of insubordination, you know, we're, we're really learning ways to like the richness of Jack's character. And they get into Kutali Bay and Jack is still continuing his story with Major Pollock. He tells the Major more and more about the taking of Marga, talks about how Siahan Bey and Father Andros, who he very proprietorially calls my Pope, they have many Popes in these parts, Siahan Bey and Father Andros put off from the shore to come and meet them. And almost in an echo of the last time that the surprise was here, the surprise exchanges salutes with Turkish guns in the harbour. Well, Turkish guns, they'd been taken from the French. Um, now in the possession of the Turks. They also exchanged salutes with the Christians up in the citadel. And Father Andros, coming aboard, asks, where is Pullings? And we remember that Pullings had had a little bit of a connection with one of the one of the maids of the town. Father Andros asks about Pullings, and Jack tries to respond in Greek. <laughs> he points upwards and says, I have no idea how he would have pronounced it, promotides. And thinking that that means promoted, Mike, I love the comedy of this farcical misunderstanding of oh, all the visiting dignitaries think that this means that Pullings is no more, that he's gone to heaven. Right. And Jack tries to explain further. No, no, him, Capitano, pas morto, elevato in grado. Pass the word for the doctor. And Mike, I think we even got some of this, this mangling of Latin languages translated for us. Right. Aubrey's Greek invention, you know, if you kind of went back to the Greek, probably is, is, is getting something around raised upwards, right? 
Pas Morto. Now we're, uh, you know, and, and Pas Morto, Elevato, Ingrato. This is a little French, a little bad Italian, you know, kind of say he's not dead. He's been raised in rank here. And I'll put a special note of thanks out to Anthony Gary Brown. For those of you who are reading this things, we've talked about the the wiki P-O-B-I-A, right? There's also a guide for the perplexed, translations of all non-English phrases in Patrick O'Brien's sea tales. We'll put a link out to that, but that's available to you on the web. And in this one, I think Mr. Brown did a very nice job of giving us a little bit of insight into these phrases here. Oh, it's great, isn't it? The way they mangled language is constructed is funny the moment in which it's presented is funny and it characterizes jack so well as well i think it's really great right right and we also get the comic moment of a little girl who comes above with the flowers but just doesn't want to give them up or doesn't want to have her dress um ruffled and she comes up aboard the ship and meanwhile steve and maturin can't get down and, and mike here i think we're back to this up-down metaphor that we had back in chapter two. Remember we had Ponto and the well and going up to the governor's mansion. So here comes here comes Stephen, currently up aloft, topping it the St. Simon Stylites, as you might say. Right. He's up at the cross trees. <laughs> he kept climbing earlier on to get better views of the local spotted eagle. Of, of course, he's a spotted eagle. He's always looking for a spotted something. And the text says, there in the cross trees, he had indeed had a glorious sight of the birds, but they had vanished long ago, circling up and up into the sky until at last, oh, by the way, Mike, sky again at the end of a chapter, <laughs> circling up and up into the sky until at last they were lost among the wispy clouds. Since then, he had been horribly puzzled to get down again. The more he contemplated the void below, the more impossible it seemed that he should ever have reached these vile cross trees, and the more convulsively he grasped the heel of the topgallant mast and any rope that offered. He was aware that if he instantly and with firm manly resolution let himself dangle, perhaps with his eyes closed, then his questing feet would most probably find a hold. But this awareness did him little practical good. It led to no decisive action, only to endless reflections about the imbecility of human will and the true nature of vertigo. <laughs> Mike, this reminds me a little bit of the episode where he and uh, he and Jagiello are up, up aloft back in uh, in the surgeon's mate. But anyhow, Mowat quietly, bless him from the deck, points out Stephen's predicament during this welcoming ceremony, and Jack, with an effort at saving face, rescues his friend asks Bondon to fasten the gift of flowers to the mainmast and says, show the doctor the most convenient way of reaching the deck on his way back down. <sighs> so, Mike, we're back down to deck level. Stephen's able to join the visitors to meet over coffee and a hooker. And Jack informs him that Siahan Bay is planning a bear hunt. Ooh, a bear hunt. How's that going to go? What's going on now with Stephen and with Laura Fielding? And whatever became of Charles Fielding? Yeah, we're out here at sea and we've got all sorts of stuff going on back at Malta. And, and we've got to wonder, how does this stuff all work out for our heroes? Well, Mike, I think the best way to find out is to ask ourselves once again, what do we think next week about maybe just a touch more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart.
Grand Harbor. In all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. 